Hello, and welcome to the Bregman Leadership Podcast. I'm Peter Bregman, and I believe that the best leaders don't try to do it alone. As the CEO of Bregman Partners, my mission for over 30 years and the mission of this podcast is to help successful people like you close your leadership gaps, grow as leaders, and inspire your team, inspire all the people around you to get great results. I'm here with Lissa Rankin, MD. She's a the author of the book we're going to be talking about today, The Fear Cure, Cultivating Courage as Medicine for the Body, Mind, and Soul. She wrote, uh, she's written five books, uh, and the one that you might know also, it's a New York Times bestseller, Mind Over Medicine. We're, we're moving in a slightly different direction for this podcast. I loved this book. I found it um, so uh, full of power and and energy, and I think it's a really important book for us as leaders. And I think Lissa is an important person for us as leaders to connect with. And so I'm going to ask you to listen now and uh, and learn what you can, just as I will. Lissa, welcome to the Bregman Leadership Podcast. Oh, thank you. I'm so happy to be here with all of you. Let's start by you describing your story with fear. Why, why did you write this book? Well, actually, this book was in response to writing Mind Over Medicine, which, as you said, it was a New York Times bestseller. It became a PBS special. So it got a, a great deal of exposure. And we had, you know, it's published in over 30 languages. So it really got out there. And I didn't realize until other people really started experiencing the work in Mind Over Medicine, that there was kind of a piece missing from that book. And the process that I teach in Mind Over Medicine is called the Six Steps to Healing Yourself. And it's a scientifically based, you know, completely evidence-based process for facilitating the body's natural self-healing capacities. And um, in those six steps, the fifth step is about what I call writing the prescription for yourself. And it's based on a kind of intuitively guided, patient-centered process of getting to the root cause of what might have flipped off the body's natural self-healing mechanisms in order to make the body susceptible to an illness like cancer or heart disease or an infection or whatever, because we all are exposed to all kinds of pathogens. We're all, we make cancer cells every day. So a lot of what that is teaching is that, you know, if we wind up with an illness, it's often because the body's homeostatic processes have broken down. So why, why might we have been susceptible to that? And it's a really beautiful process. People are incredibly intuitive when we work them through this process. And when we got to step five, and I, I really started seeing this when I was teaching workshops about mind over medicine, people would go through and they'd write a list of their intuitively guided sense of what needed to change in their lives in order to, we call it making the body ripe for miracles. And it would include things like, well, I need to, um, I need to get out of this toxic relationship. I need to quit my soul sucking job. I need to move to Santa Fe because all my symptoms go away when I'm there. I need to finally go to art school because I've been suppressing this childhood dream my whole life, or, or whatever. And what I hadn't really taken into account, because I had only done this work one-on-one with my patients, 
and I hadn't really seen the scale of how this lands on people collectively. What, what I realized is that when I was doing workshops, for example, and we'd get to the point where people would, would have their prescription, they've written their prescription for themselves, and I'd say, okay, now obviously this isn't the case, but if, if I could guarantee that all your symptoms would go away if you did everything on that list, how many of you would do it? And about half of the people in the room would raise their hand. And I realized, uh-oh, we're missing a step. <laughs> because when I would ask them, well, why, why won't, you know, I want to talk to the other half of you. Stand up. Tell me why you wouldn't do this. They said, I'm afraid. So this is um, really foundational for why I wanted you on the show. And it's, it's I think, such a powerful story. Uh, I talk a lot about and teach a lot about in our leadership programs around emotional courage the willingness to feel everything. And I think that emotional courage is at the root of, of powerful action, right? That if I don't do something, if I don't have a hard conversation, if I don't take a risk, if I, if I get defensive when you criticize me, it's because there's something I don't want to feel. And if I'm willing to feel everything, then I can do anything. And, and ultimately, when we don't want to feel something, it's because there's something we fear, Right? I'm afraid. And if I'm afraid of taking an action, if I'm afraid of leaving Santa Fe or moving to Santa Fe or whatever it is, I'm afraid of feeling something. And so the, it's so powerful to say, you know, at the root of all of our inaction is ultimately fear. That's right. And writing the book was really, I mean, man, if you are arrogant enough to write a book called The Fear Cure, like, watch out. <laughs> because. <laughs> Your, all of your own fear is going to come rising up in your face to make sure that you are in integrity with your work. Are you willing to share some of that with us? What kind yeah, of fears came up for you? Absolutely. Well, so the first half of writing The Fear Cure was actually quite easy. It was kind of like writing Mind Over Medicine Part 2. It's, it's all about scientific proof that fear isn't just a painful emotion that holds us back from living in alignment with our truth, but it's actually causing heart disease and cancer and, you know, autoimmune disorders and uh, any, any number of, you know, chronic pain disorders or whatever. So that was easy. There's tons of evidence. So there's zero question in the medical literature that fear and disease are linked. But after I wrote that part, I was like, oh, no, now I've just made them worse. Right? Now, now they're created afraid. created more fear. I've created more fear. And my biggest fear about this book was that it would harm people. You know, my sole intention was to write a book with, that would serve love in the world. But I was really afraid that I didn't want to make them more afraid of their fear. And I didn't want to demonize their fear. Because as you said, it, you know, we have to be willing to feel everything and fear is included. Like we have to be willing to feel fear. And so the, the title of the book is kind of a misnomer because it's not about curing fear. It's about letting fear cure you. That fear essentially is the finger pointing to everything in need of healing in your life or everything in need of feeling in your life. So I thought your you, language. I thought you did a good job uh, in in making that clear in the book that the fear cure, you know, it's it's kind of a double entendre, and and so I'm curious, can you explain a little more about that? In what way does fear kind of point the finger and help us to kind of find our cures? Well, I think you know the minute. So let's go back to the example of the people in the workshop. 
who are, you know, they've raised their hand and they've said, okay, even if I had a guarantee that my symptoms would all go away if I did these things, I'm too afraid to actually do them. Then this is actually an incredible blessing, right? Because in that sacred space of the workshop space where they can actually look at what are you afraid of? Let's feel the fear, right? Let's examine the fear. Let's put it in the room. Let's give it a safe space where it's welcome. And so they would say things like, well, if my symptoms went away, uh, you know, I'm, I'm living off my disability check and I'd have to go back to my job and I hated that job. So, so in that way, in that way, they weren't fearing the move. They were fearing their actual disabilities going away. They were fearing that, yeah. that if they cured themselves, that that in and of itself would be a bad outcome. Yeah, exactly. Somebody else was like, well, my husband used to beat me, but once I got sick, he stopped beating me. So if I got, if I, if I got cured, then he might beat me again. Right. So they essentially what would happen is that they'd start to actually have to peel away the layers of what's underneath all of that. And often what people come to is they, you know, they find that there's like a superficial fear and underneath the fear of not getting the disability check is a fear of having to face the truth that they hate their job. Well, what's underneath that? Well, if I have to face the truth of that, then I might have to get a different job. Well, what's the fear underneath that? Well, now I'm afraid that I'm actually not good enough to do the thing that I want to do. Well, what's underneath that, right? So there's this series of inquiries that often will lead people to their most core wound. And for many people, for example, it's a not enough wound. It's, you know, they were raised, they were abandoned by their mother in childhood. They were told that they weren't good enough, smart enough, pretty enough, rich enough, whatever. Uh, and so they might get all the way down to that not enough wound or somebody else might get all the way down. I've had this happen where underneath all the other fears is one wound and it's that original wound of separation, that original wound of coming from the invisible realm of oneness and separating into this human body and separating from God and separating from nature and separating from one another and, and creating this pain of separation that we see on our planet in such an absurd level with climate change, with the political arena, with, you know, all of the othering, all of the enemy making and villainizing and demonizing of, of, of each other. <laughs> And so it's those kind of things that if we're actually willing to use our fear as a portal to transformation, to awakening. What did you do with that person when the, when the fear is that deep and that elemental? How, what's your next move? How do you help them with that? Is feeling it enough? Well, this is why I was so afraid to write this book, Peter, because I'm like, I'm not a therapist. I'm not a spiritual counselor. Like, I'm, I'm an OBGYN. Like, what <laughs> business do I have writing this book? And so I started really investigating. Um, I interviewed a whole lot of people, and I started really investigating, like, what lies at the root of all of our fears? And I, I realized... I started coming into an awareness 
of a certain level of, um, it's, uh, it's almost like our cultural worldview is a fear-inducing worldview. And I had the opportunity when I was writing this book to get the opportunity to see a completely different worldview because I spent some time living in a Karos village in, at 16,000 feet in the Andes in Peru with an indigenous tribe that until 20 years ago they had been completely isolated from colonialization, from Western civilization. You know, an anthropologist found them and they had been completely isolated uh, for 500 years. And so it's, a pretty, it's one of the few pretty uncontaminated indigenous cultures. And I got to go live there in a hut with 10 people, you know, all of us sleeping in a, a room the size of my bathroom. And I got to see what it was like for people to live in a culture where the worldview is completely the opposite of the conventional Western medical worldview. And so essentially the second half of the fear cure is about, um, is about what I called the four fearful assumptions and the four courage cultivating truths. And that's what sort of the second half of the book is all about. Can you run through those for us? What are the four cultivating truths? Yeah, absolutely. You know, and you can, you can sense as I say these, um, what it, like it's no wonder we in our culture are afraid, right? So the four fearful assumptions are uncertainty is unsafe, right? So we have to avoid uncertainty at all costs. I can't handle losing what I cherish. So I have to grasp at everything I cherish to make sure I don't lose it. It's a hostile universe, right? So I have to be in protection mode because the universe is hostile and, you know, it's survival of the fittest. And I'm all alone. So, you know, uncertainty is unsafe. I can't handle losing what I cherish. It's a hostile universe and I'm all alone in this place. Like, no wonder we're scared. So, you know, I have been doing a lot of, uh, a lot of work with my spiritual teacher around how do, we, how do we shift beliefs? And I was sort of investigating, well, what's my worldview? Because I had become much less afraid over a 10-year journey on my own spiritual path. And I was really investigating, like, what worked? What helped? And I realized that life itself had transformed those beliefs in me because I absolutely held those beliefs for 35 years of my life. And I had adopted a new worldview for a number of reasons. So I, I want to read you the four courage cultivating truths just so that you can see the, the distinction. And they are uncertainty is the gateway to possibility. In other words, when we don't know what the future holds, anything could happen. Loss is natural and can lead to growth. So instead of I can't handle losing what I cherish, coming into acceptance of recognizing that everything is actually impermanent and that we won't be able to keep everything that we love and that loss can actually be a gateway to breaking open the heart and to that kind of ecstatic grief that can, you know, the only reason it hurts so much to lose what we love is because we love so much. And if we can actually accept that that is just the human condition and stop resisting loss with such intensity, then something really begins to shift. So the third one is, instead of it's a hostile universe, it's a purposeful universe. And I wanted to say, 
I wanted to say it's a friendly universe because I was quoting Albert Einstein, who says the most important decision we'll ever make is whether you live in a hostile or a friendly universe. My publishers wouldn't let me. They said, you can't say it's a friendly universe when there's holocausts and when there's terrorists and when there's just atrocities on the globe. And I, I actually could spend an hour making a case for why I think those things could possibly still fit into the worldview of a friendly universe, but I won't. Instead, our compromise was it's a purposeful universe. That what if everything that happens, even the things that we don't like, even the things that feel like atrocities are happening for a reason, and as humans, we're not necessarily privy to understanding the great mystery. We don't we don't necessarily always know what the purpose is, but that we can trust that there is a purpose. And then the fourth of the turnarounds is instead of I'm all alone, we are all one. And this is a teaching that is taught in the, you know, at least in the esoteric branches or the mystical traditions of all of the world's religions that we are. And now science is catching up to be able to prove that we live in this quantum universe where there is quantum entanglement, where we are actually not separate from one another and that anything that I do to harm you to, uh, harms me and that anything I do to harm the biosphere harms all of the other species, harms all of, all of us. And so when we actually can come into that awareness of the true oneness of all things, it's actually quite comforting. So you can imagine when you, when you actually believe and it's not just a belief. It's like, I, maybe I should use the word trust. When you trust that uncertainty can be the gateway to possibility, that loss is natural and can lead to growth, that it's a purposeful universe, and that we are all one, you realize that you actually don't have anything to be afraid of, not even death. So I think this is very powerful, Lissa, and it's at the heart of your book, right? These four things. Uncertainty yeah. is a gateway to possibility. Uh, loss is natural and can lead to growth. It's a purposeful universe and we are all one. The It's at the heart of the um, of the book. It's also at the heart of the challenge in a sense. And And I guess my question to you is, how do we, you know, from a mind place, I mean, from my mind to your mind, I could say it makes sense. Like it makes sense. We're all one. It's every single spiritual tradition has some version of we are all one. Um, I can absolutely understand that loss is natural and can lead to growth. And I see it in tons of situations. How do I go from understanding that intellectually and maybe even conceptually to trusting it? Right. And, you know, I'm, I'm Jewish and my mother was in the Holocaust. So your, your, um, uh, example of sort of saying it's a purposeful universe or even a friendly universe uh, in the context of the Holocaust, I also find hard, like I, I, I would like to think that way or feel that way. I think those two things are very different. And it's more, it's easier for me to even think that way than it is for me necessarily to feel that way. But how do we take the, how do we cross that chasm between understanding that loss is natural and can lead to growth and not fearing it, you know, or trusting it? Well, I, I warned you that I don't sound bite well, and this is going to be one of those answers that is I'm not going to be able to do briefly, but I'll, I'll try to at least touch upon it because it's a great question, and I could talk for an hour about this, just this topic. But I'll try, like I said, I'll try to ad ad address it briefly. First of all, 
I mean, what we're talking about is the journey from the head to the heart, which is the longest journey you'll ever take. This is not something we can, thinking this doesn't work. It has to be an experience of the heart. The heart has to know it. And the heart has to not believe it. The heart doesn't believe it. The heart just is it. It is a state of beingness. And so, you know, there is no shortcut, essentially, from the head to the heart. (laughs) There is nothing that I can tell you in the next five minutes that's going to cut through the thickness of the mind that's going to argue with the four courage-cultivating truths. Um, So this is why people go and spend, you know, 10 years working with a guru in India or spend, you know, 20 years meditating in an ashram because that journey from the head to the heart is the work of a lifetime. Well, and I think there's different elements to each one of these things. So I think I agree with you. Like I think to get into an intellectual discussion about, you know, is it a purposeful universe, you know, could be interesting. And it's actually something I'd love to do with you at some point, just so that I can increase my understanding of it. But I, I don't think it's particularly useful to what you're describing, which is to develop that trust. And I think, I think it's a purposeful universe to trust that is, you know, you have to almost, I don't know, step through the mind or over the mind or next, uh, uh, you know, around the mind um, to, to get to that uh, path to the heart. I think something like loss is natural and can lead to growth. I'm intellectually there with you 100%. And yet, I don't want to lose anything. I don't want to lose the things that I love. Like I fear losing the things that I love. And I, I actually can trust in that place that it's natural. I know that. I know that it will lead to growth. And I, I fear that I will go kicking and screaming to every loss because, because I, because I do love and, and I don't want to lose the things that I love. So I think there's, there's these different elements of it. And I'm, and I'm really like the thing I'm most interested in is how do we cultivate that trust that that almost you know overshadows the fear? Well, there's three things I want to say to that. The first is I'm really sensitive to anybody who uses spiritual principles to um, to teach people how to bypass painful emotions. That spiritual bypass is all over the spirituality world, and it's dangerous. So there's nothing about what I'm teaching that suggests that we shouldn't feel the painful feeling of fearing what we love, fearing loss, fearing that we're going that I'm going to lose my daughter or fearing like that's real. And no amount of intellectualizing that fear of losing my daughter is going to make it go away. I'm with you a hundred percent. Right. So that's the first thing I want to say is this is not some spiritual bypass technique. The second thing I want to say is that, um, you know, in the great book, Feel the Fear and Do It Anyway, she essentially says that there's three levels of fear and that underneath every fear is the same fear and the same fear is I can't handle it. And I think that's helpful. I think that's a helpful thing to recognize that really what we're saying, if I say I'm afraid I'm going to lose my daughter, what I'm really saying is, I'm afraid I can't handle losing my daughter. And then what? What will happen if that actually happens? Am I going to crumble into, am I going to kill myself? Am I going to, you know, am I going to get cancer and die? Like, what's going to happen? Like, that level of uncertainty of what would I do? And Brene Brown writes about this beautifully in her work as well, talking about what she calls dress rehearsing tragedy. 
she says the vulnerability, like awareness and recognition of the intense vulnerability that comes with actually really loving is so uncomfortable that we use all these techniques to not actually feel that vulnerability of like, I love my daughter so much that I'm afraid I can't handle losing her. That's really what I'm saying. But so the more we actually experience loss and we realize like, oh, I handled it. I lost six people I love this year. Five of them were, were within six weeks of each other. I was like, holy crap, I can handle it. And it was awful. And it's still awful. But I, lost, I went to five funerals in six weeks. And right. guess what? I handled it. Right. Right? So part of what we learn through loss is we learn resilience. Right? We learn, oh, look, I can fail I have failed much in my life. I've, I've, I've been divorced three times. Look, I can get divorced three times, and I handled it. I can lose six people I love in a year, and I handled it. Like, the more we go through difficult things, and we use our tools, and we become resourceful, we grow in our resilience, and it actually makes us brave. And what you're saying is that it's not that we want those things. We don't want those things. We know that we don't want those things and, and that we could be very upfront and, and honest about that. But we also know that we have the resilience to bounce back from them so that it's less about a constant nagging fear that drives us to avoid having a difficult conversation for fear of of getting divorced. So then we don't have the hard conversation that we would need to have and we live in the state of fear of doing anything that might disrupt the relationship, the fragile bond of the relationship. And instead, we move forward and have that conversation with some courage knowing that there's a risk and that we don't want the dark side of that risk, but we also recognize that we can handle it. And if we can That's handle right. it, then we're willing to have the conversation that holds the possibility of a much stronger relationship. That's right. And it's not about being reckless, right? We're, of course we don't want to lose what we love. And of course we want to protect those relationships. And of course we want to be responsible at work and all of that. So I think people have, people have a sense that, well, if I let go of my fear, they think fear is protecting them. And they don't realize that intuition protects you much better. And I write a lot in the fear cure about, you know, diving into that. And, and intuition does protect us better. Like, that's what we don't realize is that intuition is far wiser, far more protective, and far more magical than fear. And so, you know, coming back to that trust, like, I joke that in the beginning I had blind faith and now I have evidence-based faith. Like when I say it's a purposeful universe, I could tell you a hundred stories that would make you give you goosebumps. And, and many of them are in my latest book, the anatomy of a calling, which is filled with magic stories, like real live miracles. And I didn't think such things were possible. And the practice for me, the move towards that, um, actually, can I do something with those who are listening? Can we do something interactive for a minute? Absolutely. Because I want to demonstrate what this can be like. Um, so I just want to lead a little guided meditation for a minute. So for those of you who are listening, who can close your eyes, if you're not driving, <laughs> go ahead and just close your eyes for a moment. 
And I want you to focus on your breath, just to come home to your body for a moment. And just notice that moment of peace at the end of each out-breath, just recognizing the wisdom of the body to breathe in that which is fresh and life-giving, to breathe out that which no longer serves us. And I want to invite you for just a moment to take a risk and make a brave move to call forth into your awareness something that you're really afraid of. Maybe there's a leap of faith that you're wanting to take, but you're hesitant. Maybe you're confused, you're trying to make a decision, and you're not sure what the right decision is. Maybe there's something that you really want, like this heartfelt yearning, and you feel yourself grasping for that, and it hasn't happened, so it's this sort of unmet longing, and you're afraid you're never going to get it. Or maybe you're resisting something. There's something that you're afraid is going to happen that you don't want to happen. Maybe you're sick, and you're afraid your illness isn't going to go away, or you're afraid you're going to die, or you're afraid somebody else is going to die. Whatever it is, just call it into your awareness and allow yourself to actually be with it for a moment. Just feel the weight of that uncomfortable feeling without running away from it, knowing that it's safe here, that we can hold it here together. And I want you to just feel that weight on your heart as kind of this 100-pound box weighing down your heart. And I want you to pretend for just a minute. You don't have to believe this. We're just going to suspend belief and just trust for a moment, pretend, that we live in a world where there are these invisible arms of love. And you can call it whatever works for you. Maybe it's God. Maybe it's an angel. Maybe it's a redwood tree reaching out its branches. Maybe there's some other spirit, someone who's died, a grandmother who can hold you. But just pretend for a moment that there are these invisible arms of love and all they want to do is take that burden off of your heart. They just These arms of love want you to cast the burden of this fear into these great arms of love and trust that you don't have to handle it, that you don't have to figure it out all by yourself, that these great arms of love will show you if there is an action that needs to be taken or something that needs to be done in order to protect you or someone you love. And just see yourself letting this 100-pound weight be taken off of your heart into these great arms of love. Just surrender this burden to these arms of love and trust for just a minute that it's all handled now. You don't have to worry about it anymore. You don't have to keep 
circling it in your mind or fussing around because something's going to happen and you're going to recognize if there is action that needs to be taken that you will be shown and it may show up in a dream, it may show up as an inner knowing, it may show up as a synchronicity, as something that shows up in your inbox or somebody who says something to you and it may feel quite magical because it's unexpected. It's in that realm of uncertainty and it's not something you can force or control or predict. But just feel for a moment what it feels like on your heart to imagine that you don't have to figure that out or make it happen or force it into being or prevent it. Let's see what that feels like for a minute. Just notice if you feel any lighter. And go ahead and open your eyes again. And you may hear the voice of a skeptic. It may be saying, no, I don't believe any of this. This isn't possible. This is woo-woo crap or whatever. But in my experience of 10 years of this kind of practice, what I have found, and this is when I say I used to have blind faith, and now I have evidence-based faith. And what I have found is that when I practice that practice, when I notice that I'm afraid, and that I'm trying to grasp at something that I want or resist something that I don't want, and my mind is trying to figure it out, then I go into a tailspin, and I I don't feel good. I get very anxious. But when I actually trust that I do live in a, a universe that is purposeful and benevolent and that there are these great arms of love that are supporting me and that I don't have to, that I don't live in this world alone and that, Uncertainty is a gateway to possibility. When I don't know what the future holds, mystical things could happen. Synchronicities could show up. Unexpected surprises could meet me. And I actually realize that I can lose things and still survive, that I can go to six funerals in a year, and it can actually make me even more loving and even more compassionate and even more brave to keep loving to keep giving people permission to break my heart even when they keep dying. When I can actually trust that all of these things are happening as a way to help me grow as a soul, to become deeper and wiser and more at one with all that is in the universe. And that, yes, that hurts. Yes, that means having to have some uncomfortable feelings. Then... I start to relax more and more. And my mantra this year on New Year's Eve, right at midnight, my spiritual teacher is a doctor, Rachel Naomi Remnan. I was with her. And right at midnight, I said, okay, my mantra for this year is, I am in agreement with life and I resist nothing. And man, that is one hell of a mantra to try to actually live in practice with. Because I have to call myself on it constantly. Like, I notice, wow, I am not in agreement with life. I'm fighting life. I don't think those six people should have died. They were all young. They were tragic, violent accidents, awful. I notice my resistance, and then I come back to that place of, I believe it's a purposeful universe. I know things happen for a reason, and I still feel what I feel, and I'm not resisting my pain. I'm not resisting my grief. I'm just letting it move through me like contractions of the heart. And something starts to shift. I love, I love what you did here, Lissa, which is um, you, you brought, uh, you know, you, you, by example, shifted 
the conversation from the intellectual to the heartfelt. And it's, it's what you're talking about in your book and you just did it with us here. And, uh, and it, it, it feels profound for me. I mean, I'm, I'm sort of excited to see what comes up for me in, in what I had in my mind. Mm. And, um, and there's there, it seems like there's an answer to that. I don't know if it's an answer or it's a point that's important, which is that, um, there's that we don't just sit back and let the universe do its thing. And we don't uh, believe that everything's up to us and we have to drive through and make everything happen in a hostile universe. It's a partnership and it's that we have to show up in a certain way and we have to access in effect our, our hearts and our openness. And we have to connect in ways that um, create space and openness for the universe to do its thing. That's and, right. And, yeah. It's a dance between the principles of the divine feminine and the principles of the sacred masculine, right? It's a, it's a balance between will and surrender, right? So the process that we just did, that surrender, is very divine feminine. And we live in a culture that is primarily uh, influenced by the masculine principle. And we're seeing, we're seeing the out-of-balance masculine principle go- gone, create a havoc, on the planet. We have climate change. We have, you know, global disasters as a result of what happens when the masculine principle is out of balance. So most of us, when we're talking about leadership, most of us don't need help with the sacred masculine, right? I mean, I went to medical school. I was in, you know, 12 years of medical education, taught me the masculine principle. I was more man than any man in my medical school class, and I graduated second in my class. So I know how to employ, you know, the, the beautiful principles of the sacred masculine. But that restoration of the balance of the feminine, regardless of gender, this is not about gender, is something that's sorely needed in us as individuals and in us as a culture. So what you're saying, like, I think people misunderstand surrender as passivity. But it's not passive at all. What I'm saying is that when we can trust to let go, then we will actually get motivated. We, something else moves us. We are moved by this, you know, this Shakti, this life force energy that will leap you out of your chair to go do the right thing, to go do the thing that will protect you, to go do the thing that will bring you into alignment with your calling or to go do the thing that will restore love to your marriage or to go do the thing that will uh, improve your health. So it's not like you're just going to sit back and wait for the universe to like come feed you bonbons, right? That's not, that's not the teaching at all. It's about that um, balance between will and surrender. Uh, and I've, you know, I've, I have some awesome stories. Again, I won't be able to, I, won't, I don't have the time to tell them, but I have some awesome stories of when I've actually gotten out of balance in the feminine and needed to call forth my will, right? Where I actually needed to draw a line in the sand and say no. Like it's often that sort of Kali-esque kind of fierce goddess energy of saying no. This is where I'm drawing the line in the sand and using my will to protect myself or someone else, right? It's that mama bear energy. So I think um, action, you know, our relationship to action. We have a strong cultural belief that says that 
um, all all good things happen through effort and force and trying and pushing ourselves until we're exhausted. And I, like I said, I could give you a hundred stories of times when I did nothing other than the practice that we just did. Like I just did this a couple weeks ago. I did that practice around because I couldn't figure out how I was going to pay an unexpected, very large bill. And I'm not kidding. Within 24 hours, I got a phone call from a lawyer that he had just closed a class action suit against a gallery owner that I showed my art with 15 years ago. I had long ago given up on this crook who had stolen my art and stolen my money and whatever. Apparently the other artists had a class action suit and they just settled it. And he's sending me a $50,000 check. (laughs) And I was like, it was within 24 hours of surrendering the burden of that bill and not knowing how I was going to come up with that money that I got a $50,000 check sent my way. And I was like, wow, it looks like a miracle. And I don't understand that. I can't, give you an intellectual answer to, I mean, you could say it's total coincidence, but when it happens over and over and over and over again, it starts to look like magic and it starts to give me trust that there are forces in the universe that I don't understand that my brain can't explain. And I'm not going to be able to convince anybody. And I'm not, I don't actually care to convince anybody. I'm not, I'm not interested in dogma or belief or even religion I just can say personally that I have evidence-based faith because I could tell you a hundred stories like that of what's happened when I've been willing to let go of thinking that I'm in charge and I'm the sole creator of my reality. I believe I have a say in my reality. I participate. I co-create. But there's another, as you said, I'm in partnership with something I don't understand that loves me. And my gratitude for that is so extreme that the more I actually inhabit that space of gratitude, the more the dance seems continual. Like it's happening all day. It feels like I'm dancing with magic. And I just feel really excited to have the opportunity to invite other people to experiment with that for themselves. And I don't care if anybody believes what I'm saying because that's not important to me. I just feel really grateful that I get to have this experience and (laughs) I want other people to um, be curious with me about whether that's possible. And I think that's the, that's the parting uh, uh, advice or sentiment around this, which is the maintaining a state of curiosity. It's very easy coming from, from a mind based system to say, to argue, right? In any number of ways. It's very, it's, in fact, it's very easy. I wrote an article once um, for Harvard and I can't remember what the title was, but the the concept behind it was um, the heart is a very easy target of the head. That it's not hard to disprove uh, intellectually uh, uh, heart-based ideas and, and emotions. It's, it's just not hard. I mean, it's, it's, you could, you know, a, a, a whip smart mind can kind of, uh, uh, break down just about anything, but it takes uh, not only trust, but I think the, I think you just nailed it. The journey between the head and the heart is traveled through 
the mode of curiosity. That's right. If we're able to be curious and to keep that curiosity open, then we're able to walk that path in a certain sense. That's right. And this has not been an easy journey for me. I actually, it's interesting because my roommate is autistic and she didn't finish high school. So she does not have a strong cognitive mind. I was top of my class in everything. I have a very strong cognitive mind, a very smart mind. And her spiritual journey has been so much easier than mine because she doesn't resist it. She's not constantly fighting it. She's just existing with what is. And I have fought it tooth and nail every step of the way, and this is the reason that my spiritual teacher is a medical doctor because it's only somebody like that that I can trust. And she will say to me things like, the mind makes a wonderful servant and a terrible master. And I'll start asking her questions, and she'll say, Lisa, maybe how and why are the booby prize? And my mind goes nuts over that. <laughs> right? I'm like, no, 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 the how and why are everything. And she's going, what if it just is? So you know, I've, I've had to really struggle with that. And her, the, the mantra she gave me in the very beginning was be curious. And I am curious because I have a mind that's curious. So it's almost like we can use the curiosity to enlist the mind to be like, hey, there's a rabbit hole down there. Do you want to go look and see what's down the rabbit hole? If we don't like it, we can come back. Yeah, I think that's very powerful. And, and I understand that your, your next book, the book that's out now, uh, Anatomy of a Calling, is, is, has an element of memoir in it. And I, I'm very excited to read it because I imagine – it, that it's going to be a very interesting journey from this sort of male orientation and very mind-based uh, orientation to what where you are now, which is you know which is not uh, exclusive of the mind but inclusive of more, and and that uh, feels like it must have been a difficult journey because uh, you know I'm I'm I, I'm I share with you. Uh, propensity and a focus and a reward system that's been very, very focused on my mind. And so I, I love the sense and I know I'm going to share this with listeners, but I personally am leaving this conversation um, with a real commitment to that curiosity and to say, mm. you know, let's, let's see, let's look at it. Let's be open and, uh, and, and see, see what we see with, you know, holding the kind of rational defenses at bay uh, for some period of time to connect with something deeper and see what shows up. Um, the book that we're talking about now is The Fear Cure, Cultivating Courage as Medicine for the Body, Mind, and Soul. Lissa Rankin, uh, thank you so much for being on the Bregman Leadership Podcast, and I'm excited to read your next book and to have you back at some point. Peter, can I say one more thing? Please. I just want to speak to the resistance for a minute. Like, if there's a part of you that wants to dismiss what I'm saying or that's arguing or wants proof or any of that, I just want to acknowledge that the resistance is welcome too. And one of the other teachings that my teacher gave me is you can't force a rosebud to blossom by beating it with a hammer. And that's really true. So I want, and I know that that was very important for me to be able to acknowledge and welcome my resistance, to, to say, okay, resistance, I hear you. You're part of this system of LISA. You're welcome here. I'm listening. And at some point, the resistance, 
the resistance had the wheel of Lissa for a long time and was making the decisions from that place. And at some point, the resistance just relaxed enough to let another part of me start to take the wheel. But the resistance is still in the car, right? Like, you don't... uh, you don't have to demonize the resistance either. Just like we're not demonizing fear, it's welcome. So I just wanted to speak to that because I know that part, sometimes we can go into sort of self-judgment or other judgment. And when we actually make spaciousness for like, oh, it's all welcome and we're, everybody's entitled to their own journey and we're all at our own pace and it's all okay. <laughs> yeah, and also I think, it's, it's, I think that's great. Thank you, Lisa. And, and the idea that the journey from the head to the heart doesn't mean that you're leaving your head and now living in your heart. That's without right. your head, like that's that, we've right. got both a head and a heart, and they're both <laughs> very useful, and and we don't need to um to get rid of one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I I use my I give my mind lots of tasks when it's time to do the taxes. Mind, I need you. You know, when it's time to research a new book, mind, I need you to do some research, and it's it's great at that. Mm-hmm. And it's also useful to have rational thought be part of our decision-making. It's just that there are all kinds of other ways to make our decisions that can inform that, and the mind is one of them. So I love that. It's just under a larger umbrella. That's great. Lissa, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thank you. It's my pleasure. Thanks for listening. Here's what I've learned from working with some of the most successful leaders of the most successful companies. Every leader, every team, and every organization has a leadership gap. If you want to become a leader who inspires your team to get things done, then you've got to start by raising the level of your leadership abilities. You can start by taking our free leadership gap assessment at www.bregmanpartners.com forward slash quiz. Then dive deeper with a copy of my latest book, Leading with Emotional Courage. For more ways to become a truly great leader, check out our online offerings, in-person workshops and events, and my articles at www.bregmanpartners.com. Again, thanks so much for joining me today, and be sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode.